Hello and welcome back to the Hypothesis Podcast. We are now at episode thirty-nine, almost forty. My name is Feely. I'm Patrick, and I'm Liam. And we are back again today. We are back with just us, so no guests. So just purely three of us. So that'd be nice. And today actually is a Thai New Year. It's in April. Haha. <laughs> so Happy New Year. Somehow. Happy New Year. <laughs> it's the year twenty five sixty six. You guys are in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, our, our year counts in, like you know, flip on January first, but the, the celebration is now. Quite interesting how I mean Iranian New Year is in March, right? Like Persian New Year, because it's like first day of spring. Because to me, it's like I wonder why in the West they use first of January because like it's cold and dark, and you know, especially in Canada, it's like kind of still cold. I was like, okay, it's like um how a lot of a lot of like older countries, countries that were established longer ago, they have these borders that kind of make more sense. They have borders that follow rivers or mountains. And then you look at like maps of the various like states in America and they're just straight lines that people kind of arbitrarily drew on a map. That's what that reminds me of. They probably just arbitrarily chose January first for some unknown reason. I guess I mean we used to have thirteen months because we followed the moon. And one of them is got scrapped off. It's kind of weird, isn't it? We are so used to twelve months. Imagine having thirteen, and each month is shorter because your moon phase is shorter than it's not exactly you know thirty-one days, right? Like or thirty days. So that that's it's interesting to see the, how different culture go by time. Like you know the what's called uh, the twenty twenty-three right now is based on Jesus Christ, right? Like. But twenty five sixty six based on Buddha, like his Buddhist calendar, right? So, so because it's a little quite a bit older than than Christianity, that's interesting to see. Anyways, let's move on to the intro topic. I have a short one today. So I was seeing this magazine I get every week. This is from September last year, but they on a cover that has a picture, a photograph of Siberian Zen stones. I was like, well, what's so interesting about it? I was like, well, it looks like basically you see a rock or a stone on the lake, for example, it just stone on a lake. But these stones are balanced on this really thin, like very thin pillar of ice. It looks impossible. So they compared it to Japanese Zen stones, which are you know people stack stones for to to calm their mind, to meditate or whatever. So this is what happened naturally. Yeah, that was my question. I was going to say, does this just appear naturally? You answered. Yeah, it's, it has a very specific condition, which are harder to find. That's why Siberia's Lake Baikon, oh, I might butcher that pronunciation, is really perfect for it. So like, it's, it's basically like a stone balance on a thin, like thin stick of ice. Like, how, how would that happen, right? It doesn't make any sense. So a researcher at uh, Lyon University in France, I think he did some research on it, tried to recreate in the lab and was successful. So the meteorological conditions were that even though the lake has to be very frozen, you know, imagine in Canada, what we have here is like sometimes you can skate on a lake, for example, right? And you, you can measure the thickness, but there you can throw a, a 10-wheeler on on the ice and it's still frozen. It, you know, it's really thick. I think Canada has that too in the in the northern part, right? The permafrost. But this is like a big lake. Or uh, maybe in like Alaska too. I think they have like a there's a TV show called Ice Road Truckers or something like that. I've never watched it, but I've heard of it, and that sounds like they they can drive on these really thick sheets of ice. We we have a lot of that here in Alberta where they'll like go along a frozen river and essentially purposely flood the ice with water from underneath to make ice roads. And that's how they get like big equipment up the different um, oil sands sites up north. And also how people can get to remote communities in the winter. It's very cool stuff. So 
the condition then create this this kind of Zen stones is that it has to be always like under freezing, but there's no snow. So all the ice are from like the sublimation. And and for what happened when there's no snow and there's a, a rock on it, so the I think they call it the umbrella effect. So the radiation around from from the sun would gradually melt the ice under it, but the part that's under is the center of mass is covered. So it's like the stick on the umbrella. Right? So what's ever left from ice being melted, um, gradually melted, is the little stick that holds up the rocks, which is not common. This is quite rare, but, but it's possible. They recreate in a lab where you get um, block up ice stick and put some IR or infrared radiation around it and try to melt the ice down carefully. Okay, so there's no snow deposit or nothing. And you can see the same effect on some, some material. I wonder if it happens there as well because the position of the sun in the sky. Because I imagine like if you have this stone on a lake and if the sun's very close to the horizon, it's going to hit underneath. As the ice melts from underneath the stone, except this pillar, if the sun's really low to the horizon, it'll hit that pillar eventually. But if the sun's always really high above, then the pillar will kind of be protected underneath. So maybe maybe that has something to do with it as well. Yeah, I feel like a lot of things in nature, the rare things, right? They exist in certain places because very specific weather condition or meteorological conditions were required to have these. and And... What I think what's beautiful about it, if you never see it in nature, you probably like never, well, don't really dream of it or think of it, right? It's like, oh yeah, yeah, you know what? Anyone can balance things on ice like that, yeah. But, but would it happen naturally? That's that's another question, right? And how how it happens? So this uh, kind of what's called mystique of nature, this kind of helps out like humans intuit. As to how how things work, basically physics, right? Like we intuit of how things work through seeing nature, to seeing mathematics or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think this is an interesting thing to see people relate to Zen stone in Japanese Zen stone, even. Oh, um, it's just interesting looking at the position of Lake Baikal. Um, I know it's also the deepest lake in the world, and it's typically frozen because it's in Siberia. Um, but it's also at the same latitude as Edmonton, which is uh, pretty funny. But yeah, it's eternally frozen, or it's frozen quite a bit, but it's a very interesting feature of Russia. Very cool. Literally. <laughs> um, I do have another piece of news. Uh, this happened uh, a little while ago, and... Uh, I guess we haven't mentioned it yet, but they recently announced the new NASA moon missions, so the Artemis missions, which will return to the moon. And just, I believe last week, um, they announced the astronauts that will be in the first orbital mission of the moon. So instead of landing on the moon, these astronauts will be essentially going to the moon and back the first time since the end of the Apollo missions. And it's really nice because there are three Americans. Uh, so they are Reed Weissman, uh, Victor Glover, and Christina Hammock-Coke. Uh, and then we have a Canadian on board, uh, Jeremy Hansen, who will be a part of the journey. So it's just really cool to see that a Canadian was able to get on board this uh, first flight to the moon. Uh, and apparently it's in, in exchange for providing the Canda Arm 3, which will be used in the Artemis missions. Is there a reason they're going to the moon? Because like before, even the first time for the Apollo program, the reason they go to the moon is not science, right? It's it's during the war, well, Cold War, or something. It's, it's it's the race with the, well, yeah, with the Soviets, right? The Russians. So it's like they didn't even have scientists on for a while, right? They didn't really, but they weren't doing scientific exploration. They were just like. We need to get there to show the exert the dominance. Well, I think there was always science in mind. Maybe not by like you know the the president of the America and you know other people, but like I think the astronauts kind of had it in mind. And 
they did learn a ton from actually going to the moon as well. But not for a, not for a while. They didn't send scientists like to do stuff for a while. No, but they took like they they, they learned things essentially by doing it. I I know a lot of the astronauts, if not all of them that went to the moon, weren't scientists at all. They were all, for the most part, pilots or fighter pilots, because that's what you need. Whereas now we are interested in the moon for science, and also as kind of a gateway to the rest of the solar system. It's very challenging to get out of Earth's orbit and its influence, Um, and you can listen to more about that in our previous episode about spaceflight. But... We are going to be essentially using the moon as both a scientific interest and also as a gateway to places like Mars and beyond. So I know they want to put an orbital space station around the moon, uh, which will kind of act as a stopping point to future moon missions. Uh, And it's a lot easier to escape the moon's gravity well uh, than coming from the surface of the Earth. So... It makes sense that we would go back to the moon, especially with the idea that we will eventually get to Mars. It's like basically like a relay gate, or it's like a gateway to to space. So instead of going to, let's say, some big space stations where you have to build, I think it might be a good idea to you know just stop by, get some gas on the moon, and because we have like a you know place to sleep and before. The moon is not that far, right? It takes like less than a week or a week to get there or something like that. And, you know, prepare, make sure if you're like, okay, I really can't handle a long trip to Mars. You're like, okay, because I know that. Okay, I tried to go to the moon and it sucks, right? So so maybe it's a good way to like be like a refill base or something to, to test, test going to space. Because if you go to International Space Station, for example, it's all cram. It's all, you know, tiny... You're in a little boxes, like bunch of boxes. But if you can build a like relatively comfortable base on the moon that like, you know, a living quarters test it out how to live in space, that'd be really good. Yeah. Uh just to add in, uh, so their mission is ten days to the moon uh, and back. So it's a total ten day mission, which I believe is the same amount of time the first test capsule took, uh, which was launched fairly recently. And also I just want to out the idea of essentially orbital assembly. So along with getting to rest and uh, make sure you're fit for space and fit for travel, uh, there's also the benefit of essentially assembling a rocket in space. Now this is something that we've kind of done with the ISS and we're able to thrust it together to um, go into a better orbit or to avoid things, but hopefully we'll see things like assembling giant rocket ships in space that will able are able to take us to mars and also provide the room that we need so that the crew isn't killing each other or going insane um which is a, a legitimate concern well i mean like even for planes some people prefer transits right? like connecting flights because like, I, you don't want to sit in in a plane for 20 hours and you know, people are going insane from that, right? Like, I can see that happening. Like, imagine, I was like, oh, yeah, trip to Mars. It's about six, seven months, man. You're here with these people. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, it's like, imagine being locked in a closet with one to three other people for eight months. It's like, you'd go nuts, I think. Definitely. I, I remember at uh, St. of X, we had a guest speaker who actually was from the University of Alberta and gave a talk there when I went there. But he was um, essentially aiming to be a private astronaut. So we have our public astronauts, which are like the Canadian Space Agency or the NASA astronauts. But there's a new industry around private astronauts where they're hired by private companies to go to space. And so we had this person come in and talk to us about an isolation experiment that he took place, uh, I believe, on some volcano in Hawaii where essentially they were stuck with the same people in the same building for months on end and treated it like kind of a Mars habitat where they could only go out in spacesuits, so they couldn't actually go out um, just even though it was on Hawaii and they treated it like a true isolation experiment which was really quite interesting to hear about must be brutal Yeah, what happened if you like really don't like the other person? You know, it's like ah, 
oh shoot, you know, you gotta reconcile somehow, right? Like you can't just uh, be super dramatic all the time. <laughs> There's an interesting book called Red Mars, which came out about thirty-ish years ago now at this point, but it, it was a really good, accurate-ish sci-fi. But it features a hundred people traveling to Mars altogether, which four people would be quite a lot. In, and and mind you, the ship in this book has quite a lot more space. But imagine ha- having to deal with a hundred people every day for nine months. That's just that'd be a lot. All right. So, shall we get to the main topic of today? So today we're gonna be talking about. I think as we talk, mentioned about this before in in previous episodes, so we talked a little bit about it, well, or maybe for a whole one or two episodes. But we are back at it again, so we're gonna talk about science fiction and some technologies that appear in science fiction. If it makes some sense, or or if it's actually being realized. So, anyone have any take on it? Yeah. So, science fiction is really Interesting, and personally, I'm a huge fan of it. I don't know about you guys, but it's very cool to read and to see new technologies that might be possible in the future or are definitely impossible. And it's also fun to go back in history and see what the science fiction was historically, and then see how far we've come today, because science fiction has been around for centuries, if not millennia, uh, dating back to Roman and Greek and even earlier periods. Um, so there's examples of traveling to the moon, which is from Greek and Roman times, or there's some essentially myths or epic poems that talk about these fantastical devices that humans aren't capable of. Uh, for example, Archimedes spheres or the Vimanas that come from ancient Indian poetry, um, like the Hindu epic Ramayana. Uh, which is over 2,000 years old, mentions flying machines that have advanced weapons that could destroy a city. And so the idea of technology that's beyond our grasp is really embedded into human culture. And while those old examples might be more so myth or fantasy, they aren't quite classified as science fiction, but they have science fiction elements. And it's thought that the first actual work of science fiction is Somnium, uh, which translates to the dream from Latin, which is from Johannes Kepler in 1634. So that's kind of seen by several notable people, including Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan, as the first instance of actual science fiction. And this book just talks about what it would look like to view the Earth from the moon. So we've always had this fascination um, with the moon and with going to the moon. And that's something that within the past 60 years, we've actually seen people do. Uh, Just four years ago, we hit the 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions. But thinking that we've been dreaming of going to the moon for many hundreds, if not thousands of years, it's really cool that almost within our lifetimes, we saw someone go to the moon. Uh, And now we're seeing emerging technologies that are becoming more and more possible, like long voyages under the ocean, uh, or people just flying in general. We see it as commonplace. We just talked about people hating to be trapped in the tube of an airplane for 20 hours. But it's so commonplace nowadays, whereas 100 years ago, it was a brand new technology still. I guess 100 years ago from now, it was a bit more commonplace, but 150 years ago, it was unheard of. So there are many technologies from science fiction uh, that we've seen become possible, and it's worth talking about the technologies that are still in science fiction that aren't possible, but they might be. What? Oh, it's interesting you mentioned Ramayana because it's it's um it's quite old, right? To me, it's almost like the Greek mythology. It's the same kind of type. It's like because like it's it's weird in a way. It's looking at modern standards, right? All the gods and all these stuff, like like. Rama is, is like an avatar of Vishnu, if I remember correctly. And it's about the journey of that through the, um, what do you call it, the giants? Like, equivalent to the giants, you fight them, and there's a lot of, um, 
unsavory things or, or let's say immoral stories. It's it's like also the same the same in like uh, the Greek tragedies, right? There's something that's like morally ambiguous or sometimes just wrong, just absurd. It's always in those old stories, and they all have this type of machineries or chariots that somewhat magical. But where is the word magical? Is is kind of strange because what we do, what we use now, would be magic to people two hundred years ago, right? The fact we can pick up a phone and talk to another person across the globe—that's magic. The fact that there's a light coming out of your phone or your your device or like something you hold and you can shine light, that's magic, right? Like because before it was like lantern. Everything is magic until you understood it. It's like even right now we have magicians. We should do tricks, basically, right? They trick us, but you know they they're honest about it. We do it for fun, right? But it's look it's magic. But if you're a magician, you understand how it works. It's not really. You still feel like that's magic, you or you feel like it's tricks. So as sci-fi, right? Even things we see, it's like, man, maybe maybe flying cars, they are like magic, but like we have them, we just call them planes. <laughs> uh, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who um, was a famous author, but he said any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable, indistinguishable from magic, uh, which is part of his three laws. We wouldn't get into that. But yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I guess the magical things that we have just at our disposal and are so commonplace. Like you said, you could see someone who's on the other side of the world on a brick of glass that you're holding in your hand. It's really incredible. I think one different thing about, I guess, you know, modern day magic, like warp drives and stuff like that, is that we have the really good well, I say really good. We have a relatively good kind of theoretical understanding of a lot of things. So I think some of the topics we're going to talk about today probably, there's a, probably a lot. I mean, I haven't read your notes, Patrick, but I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of Star Trek in there and warp drive and that kind of stuff. And it's something we can't realistically obtain right now, but we kind of understand the theory behind it. So it's, it's less magical than, you know, people flying around on war machines 2,000 years ago, I, I think. That's kind of like the way I'm <laughs> interpreting it, though. We well, we we think of like people flying around in space machines. We're like, whoa, that's magic, right? Like the Star Wars thing, spacecraft, like that looks like magic or very advanced science. Well, uh, let's get into some of these technologies then, because we know airplanes exist. We know we have rockets, we have submarines and cars and cell phones. But let's talk about a few things that aren't that we don't have but we see in science fiction all the time and the first one uh to start off with is teleportation so you've seen it in star trek in tons of tv series and movies and uh literature where teleportation happens that's someone going from one place to another instantaneously in some sort of device uh and being essentially disassembled and reassembled exactly um or transported somehow over some method um, where they're able to appear somewhere instantly. So as you said, Liam, Star Trek comes up a lot. It does. There's a lot of cool sci-fi in there. Uh, That's like the sci-fi TV series. And we see it happening a lot where people are able to teleport from, say, the Starship Enterprise to the surface of a planet. Um, But we know that... Based on the laws of physics, we can't really have teleportation. Which, uh, I, I mean, it, we, we, can, we can delve into it about why it's impossible, but essentially has to do with the uncertainty principle of um, it, you can't know the position and momentum of a particle, and so trying to re- recreate that is impossible. Yeah, there's this thing called the no-cloning theorem in quantum mechanics where I don't remember the details but I guess you can't clone things <laughs> um and it has to do with kind of quantum states it's like you can't take a you can't perfectly know a quantum state and replicate it somehow at least every single time 
There, it has to do with probabilities. I don't remember, but there's a no cloning theorem. So if it if it if it, you can't clone a single quantum state, there's no chance you're gonna clone an entire human. I think. I'm just put this out there. You know, if one day they prove the one electron one electron theory, anything would be possible, man. And also, I think teleportation might happen in a way that this in a not that way. So I'm thinking in a way it's like if you find a well, a space-time curvature that connects to space, right? Like putting space far apart, they curve it so it's really close together, and you just walk through it like a gateway. So you you could say that's like a teleportation, right? Like, well, you can you just go to one place to another place really far, but by just bending space-time, I don't think that's too impossible. Well, it's less impossible than than the normal teleportation, which is like. I'll just put you there right away, right? But it's like warp drive, basically, right? But if you bend the space-time so that point A and B is right beside each other, rather than far, it just you just pop to the other one. Yeah, I mean, that's something else that shows up a lot in sci-fi are wormholes, which sounds pretty much what you're talking about. And while teleportation itself is impossible, wormholes could potentially be possible based on theory. I'm not talking even like about like wormhole is a little different. I think that's an element of of um of like translation to it. I wonder if you could, we can connect two points in space. Let's say it's like like a door, right? A door is one of the greatest invention. Why? It allows you to walk through walls. Think about it. You know, like you 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 build something. Just a wall. Oh, you have to walk through it, and and well, one could say it's like well, what if you have a different top, the topology in in either side, right? Like imagine this is a door, basically the wall is basically space time. I'll find a way to create a curved space time such that it acts like a door, right? Like so, it's not exactly waft drive or warm wormhole, but basically just put put two space that are far discreetly. Together. Well, what you're describing sounds like the same way GR people describe wormholes, pretty much. I, I get what you're saying. I, I understand that, like, what you're saying is slightly different, but that's kind of the way they end up describing wormholes. Yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm just let's let's put a wormhole in the limit that that what's called the translate uh what you called a trans traverse length is zero, right? You put the limit that. And it's like a really short wormhole. Yeah, so wormhole. from the person going through, from their point of view, they it's like instantaneous, mm-hmm. basically. Yes. But then from, yeah, an outside observer, they've gone from one side of the universe to the other kind of thing. Yeah, because wormhole still takes time, right? Like, yeah, to, to go through the wormhole. But if you put a limit to this really short, to me, that's, that's equivalent to uh, teleportation. Uh, th- this sounds like portal guns from Portal. Yes. <laughs> Although I think Interstellar does a pretty good job with the wormhole because it is instantaneous where they do kind of pass through it, but you can like light is passing through uninterrupted through the wormhole. So there's this sphere of light coming from the opening of the wormhole. And then when they go essentially past the boundary of the wormhole, it's still, I think, instantaneous, isn't it? I I don't actually know off the top of my head, but I... I don't see a reason why it would be instantaneous. It, it's all relativity. It's all reference frames. Um, I think from your reference frame going through, time is still ticking, but I don't think it necessarily has to be instantaneous. And again, I guess it depends on your wormhole, right? And this is kind of what I was going to ask ne- next. Um, it's like how realistic are wormholes and warp drive and these technologies that you're talking about? Um. If you realistically created a wormhole, it, I guess how long it takes to go through would depend on how much like energy you're putting in and that kind of stuff, maybe. Okay, so when you reduce the length of the space-time basically to, well, the wormhole that traveled to zero, the, like I said, it's equivalent to um, teleportation. In a way, the, Patrick, I think, you said about needing a portal gun. So it's like uh, having the portal gun in portal video game. 
And yeah, would you say that teleportation or just like just skate? I don't think that's. I don't know if that even might, like possible. I guess it. Yeah, I I think depending who you are, like that. I think that's one way you could define teleportation. And I think another way, which I think is the way Patrick meant, was like through entanglement. This whole idea that you measure state. Was it entanglement? Okay, sorry. There's no cloning theorem that I brought up. It has to do with entanglement and that kind of stuff um anyway and i mean that is technically a teleportation that is physically possible is quantum entanglement or quantum teleportation depending on who you talk to but this is something commonly used in quantum computers um i can't describe it the best but maybe someone who studies or has studied quantum mechanics can but essentially no information is actually passed on uh, it's just kind of the recording of quantum states uh, over distance. But you can't communicate using quantum teleportation, and it certainly doesn't work like what you see in Star Trek, where people are dissolved and um, a- and then reassembled somewhere. Uh, well, I think it's... Also, you have to be careful what you mean by information, right? Like Because some could argue that like our physical reality is just bunch of information that like you know mass is information energy is information uh, what's distinguished things right like i think that's i think noise of the theorem comes in super handy here like we have symmetry like things we have conservation laws that happen to mass to energy to things that different from like let's say pure abstract information which in a way, the law that's governing it is not as well-defined or clear-cut or we haven't figured it out in terms of, like, let's say, quantum information is follow maybe Schrodinger's equation and whatnot. There, there's the rules to them and the rules to mass, the rules to energy. Like, if we can transfer information well, let's say, in, uh, quantum information, we can teleport it. Well, how would we apply that to the rules that we have for the "Quote unquote information of mass and energy." Well, if if we know, we w- we wouldn't be <laughs> not having teleportation. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the way you think about things in terms of information, though, because everything just is information. That, that entropy episode we did at one point—that everything is entropy, right? Like, and think about it: our perception—they're—they are just information, right? I was I was having this. Thought I was late at night. I don't know why I have this, this thought about AI. So I was thinking about like, well, how how would you create true AI? Like in the in the sci-fi, for example, you know, you see all these extremely intelligent AI, and how do you, you know, people? I feel like going it in the not a wrong way, but the way that I don't think it would really work to create a true true AI, um, because. I don't think you can create it from humans. Like, like human can, uh, can put like okay. You can create it from training, from data from human. That's that's my view, and here's why: the only way we know for sure that we can create true intelligence is through nature, right? Like, like that's what we are now. We are conscious, um, intelligent human beings. So why don't we try follow that path, right? We give our networks or whatever with some algorithm, but the data we train on, just give them um, nature, just your know, pictorial senses, auditorial, and and well, how how would you train it? Well, make it create a language model to communicate with another network, right? So it has to identify. Let's say it recognizes triangle. But what's the impetus for it to defy triangle? Well, you have to defy triangle. We could want, want to talk with another triangle. That is uh, not talk with another triangle, another AI. This is how nature works, at least for us, at least in my understanding. Right? Like when, when humans start like from, from our ancestors, or like you know, ancestor of monkeys, right? the same common ancestor, we're like, well, we have to create language. We want to survive and, and talk about things. So like, oh, here, here's a tree, right? That's a tree. Okay, here's a tree. We define tree. We start to abstract. 
right? So, but AI right now, we abstract for them. It's like, okay, here's the thing we, you need to look for or like this pattern recognition. But, but the point is to, for intelligence to intuit, to come with them for themselves. And I think through that, like that's why I think chat GPT is super important. Like language model like, is, is amazing. Now, if true intelligence would create their own language model to talk to each other, that's what we do, right? It's how we intuit things. That, to me, that's like, why don't we follow the path of nature to create AI? For sure it works. Then rather to find a new way that humans come up with, which may not work, but we know the nature's way works because we are here. Yeah. I, I mean, that's another thing that's very common to see in sci-fi is kind of man versus machine and also the evolution of AI. That's something that's predicted to happen within the next couple decades is something known as the singularity, where an AI will be equivalent and then surpass human intelligence. And we might very well be seeing the starting of that now with things like ChatGPT, where, well, it's, it's a chatbot in, in its essence, so it's not the most advanced thing in the world, but as we add to it and grow these models and they become more complex and more developed, and as we teach it more, like what you were saying where, okay, that's a tree, that's a tree, that's a tree, as we do that more, then these models will become more and more advanced till then, I mean, yeah, I, I think the singularity will happen and depending on which train of thought you follow and which kind of sci-fi you like, it's either going to be really good or not so great. I think, I think there's a move on uh, like self-supervised learning. I think that's a really good way to go because like if you keep, if humans is involved too much in like telling what they should do, then it's not real intelligence. If they can, if we can define some backpropagation or like algorithm to make it learn by itself, like it's basically coding your brain, right? Like, okay, this is how the brain's gonna work now. Let it run into this all this data or, or all all this vision, you know, all the, their own reality, and can it create itself? I think because also nature ways. Hmm. South. Okay, I'm gonna say this. Is, is crude and slow, right? It takes millions and billions, oh, billions, millions of years to, for people to evolve to be us right now. And, but we can put all that and accelerate it using computers. The new iterations of the AI comes out in seconds, not for 30 years like humans, right? Like to get a new version of us, it takes so long. So we, we feel like we are so different from people 2,000 years ago. But imagine AI would feel like how much different from their prototype 10 seconds ago. That's huge, right? So th this, this time frame of evolution is quite different. Yeah, it's all about time scales. And turns out computers are a lot faster doing things than we are. Um, I've, yeah, one thing I always... Like, I played a lot of video games. I watched a lot of movies, and there's AIs and stuff in them, like Halo, you know. Halo is Cortana, and in almost all these shows and movies, the AIs, I mean, spoiler alert, but the AIs almost always realize, wait a second, humans are awful, and they kind of turn on them, which is fair enough. I don't blame them, but I don't know if, I don't know if it's maybe a bad idea to kind of teach AI to learn in its own language, in its own way, without humans kind of being there to supervise it, because who knows, man? You never know, we get some iRobot stuff happening. Yeah, it's, just to comment on what Feely was saying, though, it's interesting, I guess, the different goals, because for our creation of AI and, like, a computer-based uh, intelligence, we're looking at, I guess, speed, whereas humans evolution favored efficiency so these programs are able to write say an essay in a couple seconds but at a much higher cost or a much higher energy cost than it takes us to write an essay because humans are able to think and um, essentially do everything quite efficiently we only need what a, a pound or two of food a day we only need about 2,000 cal calories a day or kilocalories depending on 
what term you use, but we're really quite efficient in how we operate and how our bodies behave, whereas we've sacrificed that efficiency for speed. So chances are, and I, I would be very curious to see if there's number, but from chat GPT and all the prompts and all the processing, how much energy is that actually using? Just to, uh, just for the sake of time, I think we should talk about some other technologies. And I think a good one, which I'm pretty sure you were going to mention anyway, is, uh, again, Star Trek motivated tricorders. Those are a really cool one that have actually kind of shown up in the real world recently, I think. I'll let you talk about it. Yeah, so tricorders, again, first appeared in Star Trek. Again, excellent source of sci-fi things. Um, and they're essentially these very complex devices. So they're handheld devices that have many functions, including environmental sensors. They can record different types of data. They can do analysis and examinations. There are different types of tricorders that exist in the Star Trek universe. So you have everything from environmental tricorders, which can scan the environment on a new planet and tell you information about it, including composition, if there are life forms, that kind of thing. There are also medical tricorders, which will essentially diagnose if something is wrong by scanning someone's body. And then you have things like engineering tricorders, which, for example, on a starship can give you information about what needs to be fixed, how it needs to be repaired, and all of that information. I think as far as a TV show like Star Trek went, tricorders were a very nice way to further the plot without having to talk about, oh, this man's like, like without having a whole scene about how they look at this guy on the ground who's suffering because of like a bullet wound or something, or a, I guess a phaser wound. And you can just point the tricorder at him and be like, oh, his liver's damaged. Like, and it really furthered the plot quickly. And like the engineering one, they're like, what's wrong with this giant complex machine? Just point the tricorder at and you're like, oh, yeah, it's not plugged in, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the technologies that we see from science fiction are just plot devices. Everything from tricorders to warp drives, which means you don't have to watch like a hundred seasons of them just traveling and then also things like artificial gravity or ai i uh, think 2001 a space odyssey um the ai was like the main antagonist well i think we already have the tricorder i mean not into that capacity it's just called we just call them our smartphones right i can point it at flowers and it tell me what flower it is now i can point at a dog and tell me to breed like i can point at things tell like it shows you where I am, right? Like it, 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 it does a lot of things. To me, it's not just like, okay, it's not about like one, one that can do everything, right? It connects to a network, to, to this algorithm, this machines or the internet, for example, that knows a lot of things. So in a way, we, we kind of have that. We just never expand its capability. I'm sure that people do like take pictures of your mold or, or like, you know, like your, like your, what's wrong with your body, right? It's like, oh, you, you send to a doctor. But I think in China, there's like a, a booth you can go in and it, it just like diagnose you. It's kind of strange. Yeah, I, I mean, that seems to be the way that everything is going is just connect connectivity with phones. Like, for example, there was actually a prize for a company that could produce a tricorder. Um, so that was the Tricorder X Prize. Um, and so a company called Final Frontier Medical Devices, which is now known as, I think, like basal leaf devices, um, they developed a set of health diagnostic tools that connected to an iPad. So you could like put a blood pressure pump or uh, other types of sensors that were very compact, very small, and you could essentially get a diagnosis at home of what was going on with your body. And there have been a couple other developments, like NASA has... Um, a really cool system that was tested on the ISS that takes like 10 microliters of either blood or some sort of liquid sample and can tell you what the DNA is like, what the RNA is like, if there's anything wrong with it, virus loads, protein loads, just a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, I think I read about there's like a graphene temporary tattoos you can have that constantly monitor your blood pressure and your pulse. Yeah, and I remember... Uh, an old phone of mine, it was a Samsung device, but it could tell you your 
uh, pulse and your blood oxygen. And I think they're even developing a method to figure out blood pressure based on like a light sensor in your phone, which is wild. I think they have that already. I think some kind of newer Apple watches, they, all, Apple watches that just have light sensors on the back of them and they have some other sensors too, but they can tell you your... Uh, they have... They have IR. They have IR, yeah. some kind of light channel, and it measure your blood oxygen. Yeah, yeah. Not even play blood oxygen. But like, yeah, how? I know. Like blood oxygen. Normally, you have to. Normally, you have to do. I don't know what the procedure called. Like, you have to go take blood from the arteries, not not the veins where you usually get, which is hard to do because like most you see blood on your arms, like the they're all veins, right? The green ones on your arm, your veins. But you have to find arteries and. So that process is, is painful and it's, it's hard to find. Like you have to ex- have experienced nurse or practitioner do it, but now you can do it with light. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And just to comment, we don't have blood pressure readings yet from it, but we do have like oh, yeah. blood oxygen and blood um, heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. Can, that kind of stuff. But I'm sure blood pressure's coming up in the future. Oh yeah, it's in the works. There's been some interesting research on it. But yeah, our phones, as they get more advanced, and especially as people get more focused on their health, like what we see with smartwatches and uh, even like types of glasses or other possible implants in the future, then, I mean, our phones are kind of becoming tricorders. Yeah, like diabetes patients, for example, you know, like 10, 20 years ago, that, that thing that attached your arm and stuff is like unheard of, right? At least for me, like, I didn't know this thing is connected to their smartphones, like, Oh, your sugar level is low. Sugar level is too high. It's like warn you and stuff like, and it's just like plucked in your arm. Yeah, my friend's mom has one, and and she just she takes like the phone and like scan, like just holds it up to the um the the little device in her arm, and it just tells her on an app like what what all the statistics and what the blood sugar levels are at and everything. The future is now. We we are. The, the world is very different than it was 100 years ago, let alone like 50 years ago. It's wild. Um, just to kind of wrap up this topic of futuristic technologies, and a lot of which we have today, and a couple are actually physically impossible, uh, two things I want to talk about are warp drives and time travel, just to kind of wrap up this topic. Now, these are things that we do not have the technology for, and it might turn out that we will never have the technology for something like a warp drive, whereas something like time travel, well, congratulations, everyone. You are traveling through time right now. Incredible. <laughs> just not backwards. Um, yeah, so to start off, warp drives. Um, again, another thing from Star Trek, but also Star Wars and so many other uh, different sci-fi works. And they are theoretically potentially possible in the form of an Alcubier drive. Um, and essentially, this was a solution to Einstein's equations. If you want to hear more about those, check out a previous episode on general relativity. But essentially, it was done by Alcubier in the 1990s, where he was like, okay, um, what happens if we manipulate them in such a way that we have essentially negative warping and then positive warping of space-time uh, that's essentially able to accelerate space-time around some sort of device that's running this uh, to be used to travel at faster than the speed of light, technically. Um, and, and so these solutions, which are known as the Alcubier metric, uh, describe how space-time would warp around such a device, and then he postulates how such a device might be actually possible and it involves the use of negative mass uh, also known as exotic net matter which might be a form of dark energy and then it just gets hand wavy but essentially if there is such a thing as negative energy uh, which he postulates could come from the casimir vacuum uh, from the casimir effect which we've talked about previously um, you could essentially source that and using the energy equivalent of the mass of Jupiter, we could get a warp drive working, which is wild. Yeah, it, it's it's one of these things where I don't think we'll ever realistically have one, you know, I don't think. I mean, maybe in a million years if we're still alive as a species and all that, but 
it's one of those things where I think we could actually create a warp drive um, if we can figure out this whole negative, ma negative mass stuff or negative energy, but we're never going to be using it on thing like macroscopic objects. We're going to be like, we created a warp drive for like an electron or something. And we tell, we, we transported it like over a distance of like a centimeter or something like that. Like those are, if we're ever going to make that, make it that far, those are kind of like the first experiments that'll be produced and, and they'll be very, I guess, not impressive to a general audience, but physically that's extremely impressive. And again, my, my field of study is analog gravity. So it's like things that mimic gravity. And there's all these extra systems as well. You can create, um, in these ultra-cold atomic systems, you can create things which mimic negative mass. So if you, if you push it, it moves towards you. That's what a negative mass object would have. It's very counterintuitive. Um, but in these analog systems, you can create things that do this. And they work at like you would expect from GR. So... I think warp drive is something that's realistic. I mean, it comes from Einstein's field equations, and so do black holes, and so do everything else. GR is a very, very good theory. It's just a matter of, yeah, we don't have that much energy to be, you know, flying starships around at, with, with wormholes and warp drive and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see where humans go. Not that we'll be around for it, but um, I guess that transitions into the final topic which is time travel uh which is in so many different movies one of my favorites is back to the future uh even though it's not really all that realistic because uh they, they say it's it could destroy the space-time continuum but realistically the laws of physics don't quite allow for us to go back in time they also use a unit of power called gigawatt which is definitely not an actual unit of power, but I think that's one of my favorite things from that movie. I forget the exact number, but he's like 15 gigawatts. <laughs> 1.21. I don't even think the word, okay, this is my trigger a lot of GR people, but like, I don't think the way it's, okay, the, we think of space time, it's like time in another dimension really how it works. It is a good model to describe gravity and stuff. Sure, great. But I don't think it's how it actually works. Um, well, my argument is entropy. Well, you know, there's no such thing as t minus one. There's no such thing as the past. There's no doesn't exist. We only exist in the present. We can predict the future. We can have records from the past. That's our perception, right? That there's no such thing. It's not like space where it's like you know, there's space to the left to the right. No, time is not. It doesn't doesn't exist in that topology that way. But you can make a model. You can pretend that it it acts that way, and we can use that to dis describe as a model to describe gravity and space time and whatnot. That's why I don't think time travel is even remotely possible, because mm -hmm. it doesn't exist at all, because there's no such thing as time. Well, that's a tough subject because I think many. Many physicists who are better at their jobs than we are would argue against that, but it's yeah, I, I see what you mean. Um, you also get these complications when you're dealing with GR. I mean, GR is obviously not you know the theory of everything, but it works pretty. It works better than everything else we have essentially. Um, and when you one example is you go inside black holes. You always hear people say time and space swap. And that that's true. That's a mathematical thing. So you can there's more to it than that, but in certain kind of space times which are which exist and are real as far as we're aware, um time acts like position and position acts like time and I don't really understand it. And yeah, I think you're right in the sense that, you know, entropy is, is the big thing and you can't go backwards in time. And also if time travel existed, we'd probably know because people would time travel. <laughs> We'd we'd be seeing people from the future. Well, what I'm saying is that the concept of time we come up with is is biased by our perception and by and by basically the physical reality that that makes us think it's it's work this way. It's work as as space. Okay, that's math. Let's do it. But math are models, buddy. They try to describe these things. They're models, right? Like that's why like metaphysics had kind of like. A, a finicky thing because you either believe certain thing or you don't. You can't prove it. 
you can't prove time is is it is linear or like curve this thing. Well, well, there there are effects that indicate that, right? There there are things. There are there are things that have some evidence to support the model. But we all know models can be wrong. Are you saying there's no chance at all that GR is wrong? Right? There is a chance that time doesn't work this way. The fact that we have this this space time thing, it just might be just like a, a, a mistake. But is mistake that work really well? Like a Newton's Newton's theory of gravity is maybe some people say, "Oh man, that he's wrong." Right? Yeah, in a way, he's wrong. It's worked really well. Maybe GR yeah. is wrong. It has worked extremely well. Yeah, that very well could be. Well, GR is wrong um, on some level. We know that already, and so is quantum mechanics, but they're the best things we've got right now. So, Well, this is definitely a conversation, which I'm sure will continue. But to wrap up the topic of sci-fi and the technologies, I mean, we've talked about a whole bunch, wormholes, AI, faster-than-light communication, and they're all in science fiction. Some of them might be possible. Uh, we, we're starting to see the evidence of things like uh, more intelligence coming from computers and working to program that. We also see other things like protosabers, which maybe we'll have lightsabers one day. Um, but just the fact that you can, say, video call your family who are on the other side of the world, it's still mind-blowing and magical, as Feely said. Uh, and I'm really excited to see what new sci-fi comes out and then what's inspired by those sci-fi ideas. So, to move on, before the story, I'll get Patrick to talk about how to reach us. Right, so we have many, many different ways to reach us. Uh, our first and primary method is through our Gmail account. So we are hyperthesispodcast at gmail.com. You can send us an email with questions, comments, concerns, queries, Whatever you want. Uh, if you'd like to be a guest on our show, we just had a giant string of guests on our show. Uh, so if you'd like to also be a guest and are an expert or comfortable talking about your research area, we would love to have you on. Just send us an email. Uh, if you'd rather, we are also on Instagram. We are at The Hyperthesis, where you can reach out to us, uh, slide into our DMs if you'd like. Uh, but we'll post uh, episode updates, especially when we post uh, some behind-the-scenes looks. And also some memes, which I always like to pressure Liam to get on because his memes are spicy. Uh, if you are listening to us, chances are you have found us on some sort of platform. And we are on pretty much any podcasting platform you can find. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and really wherever you get your podcasts. We are based out of Spotify, but don't let that stop you from listening to us on another service. And uh, feel free to like, comment, review, uh, let us know how we're doing. And again, if you want to be a guest on our show, reach out to us. Oh, and check out our YouTube channel. Uh, updates will be coming to that uh, eventually. We're just working on the processing pipeline right now. But uh, expect some more videos up within a relatively short time. I wouldn't say what it's relative to, but uh, check us out on all our different platforms. And again. Give us a review and reach out to us if you're interested in being on our show. Yeah, relatively short time compared to the age of the observable universe. All right, then we'll move on to the story for today. So who's doing the story? Me. So that's a story on real technologies inspired by science fiction. Yes, so we we already talked about this a bit. Um, I guess we've talked more about like future technologies that might be inspired by science fiction, but I'm going to tell you, it's not so much a story, I'm just going to kind of list off some history of actual technologies that exist in the real world right now inspired by science fiction. And I guess tricorders were one that we kind of talked about that cell phones and other medical devices already cover, but these I'm going to cover some other ones. Um, yeah, movies, TVs, books, video games, they've all impacted us and a lot of these science technology science fiction technologies from them actually show up in the real world as we discussed um and on top of that you actually get a lot of scientists that are motivated by these sci-fi tv shows and stuff like i i've heard so many physicists start at their degrees because they watched star trek as a kid or me personally i played so many video games as a kid that were all science-based and there were spaceships and planets and black holes and that's kind of what got me into physics a little bit so I think it's really cool how these things have impacted kind of our modern world today. Um, the first 
one, I'm going to tell you the story about, well, a very short story about um, Igor uh, Sikorsky. Igor Sikorsky, which if you know anything about airplanes, um, you've probably heard his name. I do not know anything about airplanes, so this was news to me. Um, But a book came out called Robert the Conqueror, which was published in 1886 by Jules Verne, um, who was a prolific writer at the time. Um, And in this book, it was about an inventor who created a gyrodyne, which is just a fancy way to say a helicopter. So this wasn't historically the first um, mention of a helicopter or a flying machine. There were some long before kind of theorized in China, and then da Vinci, of course, with his uh, flying machine. Um, But this book, this Robert the Conqueror, inspired this particular Russian-American engineer, Igor uh, Sikorsky. Um, And he eventually designed and flew the first viable American helicopter, which pioneered the rotor configuration used by most helicopters today. And then later in 1942, um, his work, with some modifications, became the world's first mass-produced helicopter. So this this old book about a flying machine, a helicopter in 1886, actually inspired kind of the modern-day invention of the helicopter. That's one kind of sci-fi. Um, it's, it's, it's an older version of, like, what we talked about today, how Star Trek um, had warp drive in it, and that influences people to study warp drive. This is kind of an older version of that. Another one is a famous book by H.G. Wells called War of the Worlds, which might actually be one of the most famous sci-fi stories ever, um, which it was popularized by um, a radio show. So this story follows the Mar- a Martian armada, which is invading Earth, and it arrives through interstellar transportation. Um, and like I said, it, it, it obtained most of this fame um, through an Orson Welles radio broadcast, which actually sounded so realistic that many of the listeners actually thought the world was being invaded by Martians. And it caused actually a little bit of chaos in the world during its air um, airing. Um, for younger viewers out there like myself, um, there been a few. I think there have been some movie adaptations of War of the Worlds, and one of them came out in two thousand five, which I think I saw at a drive-in when it came out, and I would have only been eight at the time, so I don't know why I was watching this kind of actually gruesome movie as an eight-year-old. But you know, some things slip through the cracks sometimes. Um, Turns out there was a fan of this story, the American-born scientist Robert Goddard, um, who was particularly interested in how the Martians got to Earth instead of the movie itself. Um, He actually became interested in space when he read this book at the age of 16, and he decided to study space travel. So he went on to actually create the world's first liquid-fueled rocket, which successfully launched on March 16, 1926, and this actually ushered the era of space flight and innovation which we've seen and so it was the, the world's first kind of there was the world's first liquid uh space rocket essentially which had a huge impact and then kind of my final example there's a whole bunch of other examples we don't have time to talk about but my final example example which was inspired by sci-fi it's actually the internet or the World Wide web um the English writer Arthur C. Clarke, which actually Patrick mentioned earlier in this episode, um, he was a sci-fi writer, I guess. He came up with a lot of these sci-fi things. He wrote a short story called Dial F for Frankenstein. The dial is in like dial in a phone, and F is in Frankenstein. Uh, the story was centered around a host of telephone connections um, becoming sentient before turning its anger on humanity. So ties into that AI stuff we were talking about earlier a little bit. Um, and a young man, a young English man named Tim um, Berners-Lee, Berners? Berners? Tim Berners-Lee, Berners. yes. Tim Berners-Lee read the story, and he enjoyed the idea so much that he spent his life toying with, sim- with a similar idea. He attended MIT, and he invented the World Wide Web um, in its early form, which was a bunch of telephone wires. So... This just short story kind of was the motivation for the internet we have and use almost every day today. And those were some specific examples of um, scientists and engineers actually being inspired by stories. But there's a whole bunch of other examples of this and specifically examples where um, 
maybe a particular person wasn't inspired, but something was predicted. So for example, the credit card was predicted long before it was created or cell phones and AI and all kinds of other things, but we won't get into them today. Maybe in a future episode, who knows? All right. Thank you, Liam, for the sci-fi-ish story. Oh, I think we have a pretty good productive time. So I'll talk to you guys next week and take care. Bye, everyone. See you later.